Kara, I am sick. Oh no! What's going on? Everybody's sick. One of your boys get you sick? No, the whole world is sick. I, <laughs> I, I think our guest's colleague got me sick at AAA like two weeks ago. Look at the incubation period. She was sick, and her husband was sick, and her kids were sick, but. Half of my department is also sick, so fine. I'm on pseudoephedrine. That always keeps me going, but it makes me cranky. So apologies if I have tone problems today, as I'm told I can sometimes have. (laughs) Going on pseudoephedrine or DayQuil usually has me so peppy. I get everything done, but it's all done wrong. Anyway, so Chris, who do we have on the show today? Well, I am happy to say we have Zachary Dubois from University of Oregon, newly from the University of Oregon, formerly from Cal. Cal State Long Beach. That place, yes. <laughs> Who I've wanted to have on the show for a while. He gave a great talk, invited talk mm-hmm. at the last HBA meeting. And he's been a member of the Human Bio Association for a long, long time. I believe you both actually won the same student award at one point or another. Yeah, the HAL Award? Yeah. Um, I don't remember which one I won. Whatever it was, it was the same one. I so welcome, Zachary. Excited to be here. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing excellent. I am happy to be here. I love University of Oregon so far. I'm just finishing up my first term. At the time of this recording, we are basically at the end of the semester for everybody. So how are you handling the crunch? Honestly, it's amazing. I am not teaching this term, and so I've had the opportunity to really kick up my research productivity, which has been an amazing experience. And so I'll start teaching in the winter term. My crunch is the best crunch I've had pretty much getting my PhD. It's a a mushy crunch. Yes. Now, you guys are on the quarter system, is that right? That's right. Yeah, I'm, I'm not familiar with it either. I, I thought it sounded ridiculous. So a previous guest of ours and a former colleague of mine here, Joe Weaver, is also at Oregon, and uh, she told me about it. I'm like, that's dumb. How are you possibly ever going to fit all the stuff you need into a semester? And then I realized about the beginning of November when everyone in my class was like brain dead and didn't want to learn anymore. I'm like, huh. That's why. What a, what a genius system. <laughs> Now, I'm loving being here with Joe. Just saw her yesterday, and we're looking forward to a long collaborative relationship here at UVO. And uh, yeah, the term system is is intense. It seems to me that most people cope with it by speeding up their speech. So it's just everything's like ramped up. But yeah, you lose that midterm lull of energy. But I'll let you know after I do it. <laughs> well, good. Uh, we love to start these interviews with something that we do with everybody, basically. And it's to kind of find out a little bit more about you and your origin story within anthropology and human biology. So give us the Zach story. Mm. Well, it's kind of a, for me, it's pretty winding. I, I didn't really follow the traditional path. I think many of us didn't. So I don't know where that tradition even comes from, given how unique we all are on this. But I was really inspired to study anthropology and human biology after losing a friend to gun violence and at a school shooting. And the shooters there held far right wing views. And I spent years after that organizing as an anti-racist organizer and as a labor activist living in Detroit, Michigan, and primarily focusing at that time on challenging the growth of neo-Nazi and fascistic right-wing organizations, particularly in the Midwest. And so when I went back to school, I chose to study anthropology because of its capacity to integrate culture and politics and human diversity in particular, because I found that bioanth in particular was the field that actually talked about human diversity and integrated the body and phenotype and enabled me to actually think about challenging 
and talking about the pseudoscience that was behind a lot of the rhetoric put forward by fascistic and right-wing people. And prior to going to school, I, I knew my ethics. I knew my values, right? I knew I stood against those things, but I didn't have the language to actually speak to it, particularly with a biological perspective. So when pseudoscience and human biology are brought to bear and arguments around intellect and inequality, you know, I didn't have those prior to taking anthropology classes. And so I followed BioAnt through my undergrad, and I had the good fortune of uh, working with Lynette Lydie Sievert at UMass Amherst and as an undergrad. And then again, as a graduate student, I also worked with Jillian Bentley. And so my focus there was reproductive ecology initially. And through that, I got introduced to biocultural research and really learned through working with her on her projects that were primarily focused on menopause and, mm-hmm. and fertility, how to think about individual experiences in the body, subjective symptomology, and how to really thread together doing qualitative interview-based work with measuring biology and measuring biomarkers. So that sort of formed my master's level training. And after I transitioned myself in graduate school, I decided to model some of the studies that I'd seen conducted by others in our field. So particularly Tom McDade and others who were looking at stress effects related to culture change, economic change. I modeled those to then study gender transition. Where are you from originally? Oof. Originally, again, so I was born in Boston. I grew up in rural New Hampshire and then bounced around, right? So I ended up in Michigan and Detroit for a set of years and then went to school in Western Mass. I want to say one of the things I do find so compelling about your work is you are combining the biomarker and stress paradigm approach the study of trans men so far that is so familiar to me and in a population that is so relevant, important, current, and that pretty much every student coming to me now, it seems like, is interested in in looking at. So you are the destination, I imagine, for a lot of young scholars looking to get into this field. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your dissertation work and sort of what the big take-homes were from that and we can go from there. Yeah, sure. I I hope you're right. I definitely am open and interested in working with students that have an interest in working in trans health. I think you're right to identify it as an important emerging area that certainly needs more people in anthropology who are willing to tackle some of the complexities associated with studying and working with trans populations, for sure. My dissertation work, so the study that I did for my dissertation was called the Transition Experience Study. And, you know, I'll provide some terms here just because I do think it's important that we are on the same page with terms. These are super hard. There's so many and they're constantly evolving, which is an awesome thing, but can lead to a lot of confusion. So, you know, transgender is an umbrella term. It's a broad term that can encompass any people who feel their identities to fall outside of any rigid gender binary, but also who feel that their identity or sex doesn't align with the sex that they were assigned at birth. The study that I conducted for my dissertation focused in on trans men, so people who were assigned female at birth, and also people who specifically chose to transition, right? So accessing gender-affirming medical care, including testosterone therapy in this case, and surgeries, but that's not true for all trans people. So I just want to put that out there. So I was targeting a really specific subgroup within the trans umbrella or the trans community. And my interest in working with trans people was because I wanted to understand this experience of transition. It's obviously a really dynamic, maybe it's not obvious, it's a very dynamic process, right? Where your body is transforming in a context where there's a really stringent understanding of sex and gender, and it's happening over time. It's not overnight. And People are juggling a lot. And so I was interested in just learning more about that process and that experience. And and I wanted to identify some of the challenges and stressors that trans people face as they go through the transition process, particularly because we know that inequality can lead to 
disparities in health outcomes, social inequality and stigma experience, but there was not very much out there at the time documenting what kinds of stressors and challenges were faced by trans people, particularly during transition, but also in general. Whereas there was quite a lot written about lesbian, gay, and bisexual people, and so sexual minorities more generally. And so my aim was to learn more about these stressors and challenges, and then to use that integrated approach to map some of those stressors onto the body through physiological measures of biomarkers like C-reactive protein, 24-hour measure of blood pressure, salivary cortisol, anthropometric measures. And so I conducted interviews with 65 trans men. This was in New England, so I was going to UMass Amherst at the time. And I, I basically interviewed anybody within a driving range. So, you know, a two to four hour driving range from Amherst. You could be in the study, I could get to you. And it was a really exciting project. I enjoyed it very much. I got an opportunity to sit down and talk to people, many of whom who had never told their story before. I know for a lot of us who are anthropologists doing field-based interviews, we often get to hear stories that others don't get to hear. And it's transformative for us as people. And so that certainly impacted my life directly in a really positive way and inspired me to continue this work. What I learned was uh, about a range of, of stressors that may seem logical or intuitive when you hear them, but they hadn't been talked about or documented, right? So, so coming out, the process of coming out, of telling people that you're transgender, while that sounds really simple and we're familiar with it in terms of LGB coming out of the closet kinds of stories, it's really unique among trans people if you just think early in transition when somebody is just starting hormonal therapy, people might not know they're trans and might be referring to them using a pronoun that's no longer appropriate or maybe never had been appropriate. So coming out at that point might help that person to be identified as transgender. Later, uh, for someone like myself, if I don't come out as trans, people may not know at all. And so if that's important to me to share that history, I need to disclose that. So that was one stressor, so coming out as a process. And then another stressor is referring to uh, this art of juggling transitioning or transforming social identity where people may know you by any number of names or pronouns depending on when they met you in your life and, and how you associated with them. So I'm calling that transitioning identity stress. So this is another stressor. These would be difficult to get at with a scale, right, through a fixed structured question. So it really came out of the interview context. And finally, one that is pretty narrow and people are probably very familiar with is a stress associated with using gender-specific public restrooms. Mm -hmm. So we all know that that's a really important issue right now in terms of policy and politics. And so certainly trans people talk about the negative impact that those policies can have on their lives and I heard that from the trans men that, that I interviewed as well. And maybe you could speak a little bit more to that because that's going to be a policy that the public has heard about a good deal. And believe it or not, we do have people outside of the HPA that listen to this podcast. So if you could talk a little bit more specifically about the impact of your work on that recent rash of those bathroom bills and uh, maybe dig in a little bit more about what you found in those experiences. So the bathroom bills, just to say for people who may or may not know the details of those, these are bills that have been proposed in a number of states that are effectively would require everyone to use the bathroom that matches the sex that they were assigned on their birth certificate. Right? So we all have a sex designation on our birth certificate. And we all have gender identities. And I think some people forget that. They think that trans people have a gender identity and other people just have gender right? So women are women, men are men, and that there's not an identity associated with that. And when these policies, when these bills are proposed, and they specify that you must use a bathroom that matches your legal documents, that means that you're not using the one necessarily if you're trans that aligns with your gender presentation or with your gender identity, right? So for many trans people, getting those gender documents, whether it's a birth certificate or social security card, it can take a lot of time. It can take a lot of money. And in some states, you can't do it at all. Sex is not something that has a universal definition here or anywhere. And that means that in certain states, sex is defined based on chromosomes. In other states, it's not defined really at all very effectively or 
it's perhaps defined vaguely, referring to parts of the body like genitals. And so in certain states, you could never change your birth certificate. If you can't change your chromosomes, how would you change that, right? So the problem that emerges is that for trans people in particular, it criminalizes using a bathroom that matches your identity and often your, your gender presentation. And so in my opinion, these types of bills and policies are geared to set up confusion for people about who transgender people actually are. And so instead of recognizing that trans people are the targets of inequality and violence, they instead um, imply that trans people are instead criminals or sexual predators. Because the way the bills are usually formulated is to claim that their aim is to protect women in particular and children in particular from sexual predators. And yet all of the imagery that's used to sort of uh, convey that are really showing cisgender men. So not transgender people, but cisgender men. So men whose identities align with the male sex that they were assigned at birth who might choose to dress in women's clothing, and I put that in quotes, in order to then enter a woman's bathroom, in order to then commit some form of harm. And these are not transgender women, these are not transgender men, right? And that type of criminal activity should should be absolutely countered. However, the bathroom bills, as they've become called, are really targeting trans people. These are really anti-transgender bills. They're functioning within a culture that's rooted in that binary of sex and trying to criminalize being transgender by limiting our capacity to use public facilities. And so in terms of your question about the impact of my work on these types of bills, my hope would be that it's to clarify what these are and are not doing, right? So by talking to trans people and learning, about the stress that these types of restrictions impose on our lives, right? If you are unable to use a public restroom when you're at work, when you're at school, when you are out in the world, that's going to negatively affect your capacity to do everything, including simply stay hydrated. And so it certainly directly impacts health in that regard. In terms of psychosocial stress, which is what I was measuring, I found that for people who reported having these stressors associated with coming out or this transitioning identity stress or stress associated with using public restrooms, that they had heightened cortisol when they woke up in the morning. I wasn't measuring salivary sampling cortisol when people came out of the bathroom or prior to going into the bathroom, but it was anticipatory stress. So it was this showing this hypervigilance facing the day. And it shows really what a climate that is negative and stigmatizing can really do for, for trans people or, or how it can harm our health. And so I was going to ask this question later on, but I think it actually goes in kind of segues into it perfectly right now. With the stigma and the diurnal cortisol that you just, just explained, your work can have a huge impact on transgender individuals. And I was wondering if you have brought your work to perhaps healthcare individuals uh, or workers in healthcare or policymakers, why or why not, uh, and what you kind of hope that your work can teach them and what sort of change you'd like to bring about. Thus far, my work has primarily been shared with clinicians, healthcare professionals, because one of the that um, health disparities researchers in anthropology, but also in epidemiology and public health, have been able to improve the lives and health of trans people is through transforming care. And certainly the broader culture and political climate is important as well. But currently my, my target has been to bring these findings to conference presentations. So the World Professional Association for Trans Health, Philly Trans Health, there's a number of community-based conferences that include community members and health professionals, where I've tried to share these findings in those types of presentations, because right now, for a lot of trans people, when they go to the doctor, they're in the position of teaching the doctor how to understand their experience and how to recognize the different types of challenges they're facing and how those might affect health, never mind just the basics of medical care and hormonal regimens and things of that kind. Because even if a doctor is well-trained in those areas, to not understand the social life of a trans person and the 
stigma and discrimination and challenges that we face can mean that the care that someone's receiving is totally inadequate. Um, so for instance, you're trying to understand the effects of hormones on health for trans people, and you measure blood pressure, and you look at things like metabolism and through blood work, and you then say, well, testosterone is causing you to have an increase in blood pressure or a change in your lipid profile. And these are going to be negative for you potentially if they increase your risk for cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. There's no stress taken into account. There's no recognition that psychosocial stress can have a role in how our bodies change over time. It's not always hormones, in other words. It's not always our sex hormones that cause these changes. And currently, medical professionals are not adequately considering the effects of psychosocial stress on health. And that means that some of the causes can be then applied incorrectly to hormones, sex hormones that are exogenously administered. So have you found the clinicians and healthcare providers to be receptive to this so far? Or have you been getting a lot of pushback? I admit to deliberately targeting and talking to clinicians who are open and interested in not only learning, but also contributing knowledge. And so there are a number of really phenomenal biomedically focused clinics and research institutes, including at UCSF. And then there's a number of, of clinical psychologists and health psychology in particular, clinical psychology, who are also engaged in doing LGBT but trans-specific focused um, health research to improve the quality of care. So those are the folks I've been collaborating with primarily. And so I get absolutely open arms and, and wonderful collaborations. In terms of the professionals, the medical professionals who might be outside of that, more resistant to that, obviously those are people who might not even attend the conference that I'm going to. So this is the challenge that we hope to uh, meet through publication, right? So by publishing in journals like Psychoneuroendocrinology, you absolutely can reach people who otherwise not, might not read anything about trans people. So it's that combination of doing some community-based work, some targeted collaborative work, some conference presentations, and then publishing even in journals that might feel kind of outside of the communities that we're working with, but might reach those practitioners. I want to just put an exclamation point on what we are talking about, what you're talking about when you talk about stigma, stress, when we typically look at psychosocial stress, we're looking at the relationship between psychosocial stress and other negative health outcomes, e.g. depression and anxiety. But uniquely, and you point this out, there's a lot of terms, so I want to use your terms. So for transgender and gender diverse people, the attempted suicide rates is one of the major exclamation points that we're talking about here which are off the chart compared to the general population. You indicate the estimates range from 26 to 45% of transgender and gender diverse people compared to just two to 9% of the general population. That's profound. Absolutely. The, impl the implications here are huge. And with, I would argue, an anxiety, depression epidemic in our culture that this is an identifiable population where there are some very, as you say, kind of straightforward, obvious things once we think about it that can be done to address the situation. So to transition, I, I know Kara sent you some, some questions, but I'm looking at the, the grant proposal that you sent us, and I see that you are looking to do a replication of, of earlier work, but including more breadth, uh, as well as across multiple sites. So you mentioned this can be different in different places. And I just want to throw out there that I'm super jazzed. One of those sites is going to be Alabama. Sadly, probably not because we're so progressive, 
what do you expect to see? So I'll just see you're looking, it looks like Nebraska, Alabama, Montreal, and what am I missing? Michigan and Oregon. What are your predictions with regard to those various sites? What are the factors that you'll be comparing? First, I just want to set it up just to add a little bit more in terms of what we're doing. So this is a collaborative project. You're right to identify that it's a growing out of my dissertation work, certainly in being a biomarker-based study looking at minority stress. And I'm excited to do this work because it's going to enable us to contextualize in terms of geopolitical context across multiple sites, but also look at resilience. That really wasn't something I targeted very effectively or, or deliberately in my research prior. And yet it's really central to understanding and contributing around what you've identified suicidality and risk for suicide among trans people, but also quality of life and health in general. And so with this new study, I developed this actually in collaboration with Dr. Jay Puckett, who's a clinical psychologist and trans health researcher at MSU. And so one of the sites will be Michigan, where they're located. Okay. And this will be a longitudinal study over a year. We'll be collecting data, hopefully from 45 trans people, broadly, as you said, defined in terms of their identities. So no requirement for transitioning or any medical requirement, just having a trans identity enables people to be eligible to participate in the study. We're hoping for a lot of breadth and depth in that regard. So we'll be recruiting in Michigan, Oregon, where I am, Alabama, Nebraska, and then Montreal is kind of a control site, if you want to think of it that way, because um, in terms of our expectations or predictions going in, what are the questions that we're trying to ask? This was unfortunately inspired by that memo leak in October that you're probably familiar with. It was leaked to the New York Times, where the Department of Health and Human Services was proposing a potential change to the definition, the legal definition of sex, to shift it to be very narrow, right? To make it about biological, unchangeable characteristics. And as that listed on your original birth certificate. So this would effectively erase trans people from existence. And so when that happened, there was this explosion of discussion and debate in social media and popular culture, really, about what sex and gender are, what they mean, and how we define them, which is so excellent and amazing to have that back on the table in this way. But at the same time, there was a significant amount of fear and apprehension among trans people about what this might mean for our lives, right? And so that's what inspired this project, was to try to then target these different states with some variation in what we know already about the political climates in those states, the types of resources that they have for trans people. And so when you think of states like Oregon, Oregon's kind of known for being progressive, particularly when it comes to trans policies and practices, whereas states like to identify, unfortunately, Alabama is not so much, right? It's recognized as a state that's potentially more conservative. And while I'm generalizing on state level, structural level descriptors here, it's important to also notice that there are sub-communities, there are subcultures, there are small populations within each of our states. So there's, a, there's variation, there are individual people in each of these states. And so what we're hoping to do, if we can draw enough in terms of diversity in our sample and hear from people what's actually going on in these different places, we're gonna do a, a set of biomarker measures that would include CRP, hair cortisol, blood pressure, and, and then uh, glucose metabolism. So we'll be looking to see what types of stress have accumulated over time. All of the measures will be aiming for an allostatic load measure so that we can actually see that wear and tear on the body. In relation to these interviews we'll, where we'll be talking to people of, over the course of a year, their response to any events that occur over time, they may or may not be like this memo leak. We can't really predict what happened in terms of the sociopolitical climate, but certainly we're interested in assessing that in response to that. But also asking people about resilience, what undermines it, what contributes to it, and asking about structural and community level things. So. Are there clinics that you feel safe going to that have worked with trans people before? Are there community organizations that you feel uh, recognize you as a person and that you can connect with? Do you have that type of infrastructure? So not just individual level kind of coping, 
but really cultural and community level factors as well and looking to see how those affect these biomarkers, but also a number of mental health measures. We're going to have a lot of scales. People will be filling these out monthly over the course of a year. Mm. Um, and then the in-person meetings at the beginning and at, at the end to collect these biomarker measures. Is looking at the structural supports or the social supports that they have, is that how you're planning to get at resilience? Yeah, I think there's going to be a number of ways. One of the issues with resilience is that it's really under-theorized. And not only in our field, but even in psychology. And there's a number of ways people come at it, but frequently it, it seems to me that it's assessed through coping strategies at an individual level meets, like you're saying, community level resources. So certainly we'll model that way of thinking about resilience, but we also just want to ask people, what does resilience mean to you? Yeah. What do you define it? What contributes to your resilience? You know, and with statistics like the ones that you've just read, in my opinion, a trans person who is alive and able to be out and know themselves as transgender is a resilient person. Mm. Um, I think we'll hear a lot about this in terms of what it means to people in the community. And yeah. that's going to inform how we then conduct our analyses of that. So we're trying to have some open-ended in-person conversations with people about those in addition to some validated scales that measure resilience in a more structured way. I'll say that's valuable work because I literally sat on a dissertation proposal committee two days ago structured around resilience and we puzzled through these very questions. So. Yeah, this is the kind of incredibly transformative work that will have immediate impact, I think, on the population you're working with. And that's always the goal, isn't it? To, you know, be a force for change in a positive direction. So thank you, Zach, for being that awesome person <laughs> and doing this difficult work when you will probably get pushback, maybe even from participants who don't want to identify themselves. This is an incredibly difficult study, but an incredibly important one. So thank you. Thank you. One more question not on the list, just for personal reasons. Just throwing uh, wrenches and everything. Well, you know, I mean, once, once our guests start talking, I get excited and I want to know, so... We all know people who, well, I don't know if we all know that we know, but we know people who have gone through transition at various ages. So I know kids in high school now who've been in transition since they were in elementary school. Have you looked at age and that, that sort of depth? That's, you, you're talking about longitudinal research. I don't, it's a bit of an inchoate question, but I wonder if the age at which someone transitions or identifies as trans has an impact on the psychosocial stress of this. I know from my personal experience that these questions that you mentioned have been chronic issues for these people throughout their lives that we have, as friends of theirs, have borne witness to. Yeah, I mean, absolutely age has an effect just as it does on every other experience that we have. You know, we know this in terms of human biology, we know developmentally that there are, there are changes that take place over the life course that can affect us, and certainly our field would be ideal to target some of those types of questions. But experientially, what you're talking about, the age at which someone either identifies as trans or chooses to transition, if that's something they choose to do, can vary dramatically. And so there's just an enormous amount of diversity in terms of this community's experience and identities and what those might mean for themselves and for their health, right? And so, you know, in the work that I've done previously, you know, one of the things that was important to me to convey in presentations was there's not a linear relationship necessarily between when someone transitions and how old they are. So for instance, I had a participant who was 55 and had been on testosterone for one week. In contrast, I had a participant who was 24, had been on T for four years. And so when you talk to people and you are hearing their stories, certainly you hear 
how those two things intersect, right? When that happens. And it also, in terms of stress outcomes, I think that where we're at in our lives and the cultural context in which we live can help us understand why stressors are stressful, right? So stressors are rooted in expectation as well as in experience. And so if you are someone for whom being recognized as trans in a respectful way and being seen in your classrooms by your professors is is something you've had the benefit of, stepping outside of that can be really jarring and traumatizing and upsetting. And in contrast, if you're someone who was born and raised and never was validated and never was seen, being seen and validated can be confusing, but also really uplifting and potentially supportive. But yeah, it's important to meet people where they're at and contextualize why something's stressful, not just what it is and how there's variation. Even when I'm naming these stressors, for every person I talked with, there was a different story behind why and how that might have played out for them. And age is certainly an important part, as is race and ethnicity, right? So taking an intersectional approach is important in this work as well, because there's an enormous degree of difference for what it means to be a white trans man, as I identify, and a trans woman of color, particularly in the United States. We see very horrible differences in terms of statistics for homicide and violence that target trans women of color in particular. And so both age and race are important to bear in mind when we're doing this work. One more question on that, because I love the way you explained that so well. I imagine those people, they felt terminally unique at some point in their life. Did their the opportunity or the experience of talking to you and telling you their story give them some validation and free them to some extent from that? Obviously, I hope so, right? And the way that I tried to learn that was through an exit interview. I think many of us employ these when we are doing studies that we know can be difficult. A lot of the stories that people share can be painful. And so I definitely asked people at the end, you know, what was this experience like for you and welcomed them to share with me anything, right, that they wanted to about their experience. And by and large, people did report that it was a positive experience for them. And I can say that, you know, in terms of the challenge of doing this work, as well as the challenge of recruiting and the hard to reach population, it speaks to the importance of building collaborative teams that at least include trans perspectives, if not trans people on those teams. I've been having students as well as scholars in our field reach out to me about trying to build programs that include trans participants or target questions that would involve understanding trans lives or trying to contribute to trans health. And one of the reasons why doing interviews with people can be positive and and transformative for them is if they feel seen and heard and also potentially have the opportunity to connect with a person that can relate is also part of that. But it's important to have the appropriate training and capacity to provide that and not commit accidental microaggression, right? They're not intentional, but they happen. And so, yes, people find interacting with researchers to be positive if it's positive. And I think that it's contingent on us to make sure that we're not bowing out of doing the work because it's hard, but instead like leaning in and and trying to build teams that can enable doing the work effectively in ways that directly benefit individuals when they're in the study while they're in it, not just from the data that emerges and the outcomes of those uh, analyses. So yes, it's absolutely positive and possible to do that and have that impact when it's community-based. I also would suggest that what I'm going to be building into this project, as are all of the investigators at each of the sites that we've talked about, building in community advisory boards to help guide the research to try to really instruct how we ask our questions and what we do with that data and how we disseminate it to really set us up to succeed in terms of having that positive effect and relationship with the communities that we're working in right from the beginning, but also throughout the projects. 
Beautiful answer. That's wonderful. Let's wrap up with that one last final fun question. We've been talking about stress a lot today. Uh, so what sort of fun activity do you do to de-stress or maintain balance in your life? Well, I'll admit to this being a weak area in my life, which is <laughs> ironic or not, I think. This, the research that we do always says something about ourselves in the end. But I'm inspired to de-stress by moving to Oregon. I will say that this state is stunningly beautiful. For anyone who hasn't been here, it's green and has, you know, there's, you drive an hour in, in any direction and you'll be in a desert or a mountain or at the ocean or in a city. And I live in Eugene, which is a really lively college town. And I'm new here. I've only been here like two months, three months. How, what month is it? Since September. And luckily my work makes me get involved in my community. And as I mentioned earlier, Oregon's really progressive when it comes to trans lives. And because it's beautiful, because it's green, I have gotten on my bike. I live right off of a bike path so I can bike to work in 30 minutes along a river. And That's great. It's amazing. Yeah. There's a, there's a really lively bi biking and hiking culture here. And so getting outside is something that I'm doing more of here and, and look forward to doing more of in the future. And I just took a woodworking class, if that counts. I don't know if it... Did, that did that totally counts. Totally counts. My stress, because, you know, you're meeting tools that can hack off your limbs if you're not careful. But I made a cutting board, and that was really fun. And I look forward to continuing doing stuff like that. I'm great. Zachary, how can folks get a hold of you if they want to learn more about your research or reply to work with you for graduate school? Through my website at University of Oregon. You can email me directly. I'm in the process of getting my website up and running here. I'm establishing a biocultural research group right now. I've got five students so far, so hopefully soon you'll have bio sketches of everybody. But for now, certainly drop me an email in the department. That's wonderful. You haven't even taught yet, and you already have five students. I'm envious. Zachary, thank you so much. I've been Kara, and you can find me on Twitter at Kara Blackbuck, I believe. <laughs> I've been Chris at C-H-R-I-S underscore L-Y. We have been the Sausage of Science. We want to say thank Zachary Dubois. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. Thanks all for listening.